Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have an exciting and confusing show for you this week. We're going to talk to J.P. Gwynn about the new series Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, it is a Donald Glover remake, and it is uh, on Amazon Prime now. And I'm also going to speak with Jake Harris about the return of Jon Stewart to The Daily Show, which is ongoing and seems to be quite successful so far. But first, it's time to talk about Madame Webb, the most unintentionally bad good movie of the year so far. London Faust wrote about it for us, and they will be here to talk with me about Madame Webb right after this web-centric interlude. A week ago, I spent my life racing against time. I'm gonna help you out today, okay? Trying to save people who were running out of it. Until one moment changed everything. If you wanna live, you have to trust me. Certainly the most unintentionally hilarious movie of the year so far is Madame Webb, the latest uh, Sony Marvel-affiliated Spider-Verse movie. It's been uh, met with much mockery online uh, by myself and by many other people. Uh, I I, I saw it and um, really enjoyed myself, but not because it was good, but because it was, in fact, very terrible. London Faust wrote about Madame Webb for us. In fact, uh, laid claim to it. Months before it came out, it's like it's like they had a um, a, a premonition that uh, like like Madame Webb herself that this movie would be uh, an unintentional cap classic and and uh, London is here today to talk to me about Madame Webb. Hello, hi, hi, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I'm a big Dakota Johnson head. It's part of the reason why <laughs> I uh, will try to not let uh, it spiral, but because um, every time uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the 2015 film, comes up. I go on and on and on and on because I sincerely believe it is a complete masterpiece. Like sincerely, it's an amazing film. And uh, uh, the last time I saw uh, Dakota Johnson uh, in a Valentine's Day film, of course, I saw the sequels to Fifty Shades. So not really, but just that great memory of um, going to see Fifty Shades. I'm like, well, I heard it was kind of intriguing. And, and then I go see it and I'm like, huh, yeah. It did. Madam Webb didn't fulfill that. <laughs> so, if you love Dakota Johnson, there is a lot of Dakota Johnson in Madam Webb, and you know she is. She does have her kind of weird, ironic allure to some extent, but it also just felt like you know, she was acting in almost like in a different movie um, than than everyone else. She was just making these kinds of wry asides, and then was forced into these heroic moments. All right, look, this movie. The premise of the movie, as absurd as it is, is that Dakota Johnson has mystical psychic spider powers, sort of from the Spider-Man universe, because her mother was bitten by a magical spider in the Peruvian Amazon in 1973 uh-huh. and then gave birth to Dakota Johnson in a secret uh, cenote presided over by these uh, Peruvian spider people who are kind of dressed like Spider-Man. They have like red paint on and webs all over themselves. And then so, and then 30 years later, she, these powers mysteriously begin to manifest themselves. <laughs> but there's also this henchman 
who is with with uh, Dakota Johnson's mother in the Peruvian Amazon. He was probably about 30 at the time and is maybe about 40, 30 years later. Maybe the spider bite uh, gives him uh, de-aging. I don't know exactly what's going on, but he's he's quite a, quite a, a character. He basically, he's basically like evil Spider-Man. Right. Um, it, I, I did think it was pretty funny how like badly or how bad the aging for him was. Um, yeah, like it, it had definitely not been 30 years. Not much older. Like nitpicks like that are like, you know, you can get over um, and uh, if like the rest of the movie is offering something in, in general, even if a film is not offering that, I try to not pay as much attention to it. But, you know, the, the thing about the film and, you know, Marvel in general is it's it's try to be, you know, as like as serious and competent as it can be for the longest time. Well, still, you know, having, you know, the comic bits to add for levity. So just the whole tone is dependent on, you know, not having plot holes and just being solid more than, you know, uh, going for any kind of transcendent element whatsoever. And so they've been doing I, – I don't keep up with it because I think it's garbage, um, the entire uh, enterprise. MC, the MCU, yeah. Yeah, not that this is in the MCU. <laughs> But the movies are mostly competent. I, I, I've seen it well, all. Well, that's the problem, the movie, though. There's competence and, and, and occasional artistry. Now, <laughs> You know, Madame Webb is extremely incompetent. And and then, but as you pointed out in your review, then there's the added element on top of all. There's the, then there's the Sidney Sweeney factor. You know, Sidney Sweeney is like as close to a, a sex symbol as the movies have right now. And she's just kind of emerged in the last few years. And But she's playing this like kind of quote-unquote nerdy, shy teenager who wears glasses, but ha- also has this thigh-high skirt and a sailor shirt tied at the midriff uh, and these socks, and, and and you're just like, you know, and then she's supposed to be a spy- Spider-Woman of the future. And, you you know, you can't take your eyes off her for good and bad reasons. <laughs> I don't get, the, like, I, I feel very alone. I do not understand the sex appeal of Sydney Sweeney. I think that Taylor Swift and Margot Robbie are far more attractive than she is. I don't like her face, um, and I don't really care about, you know, quote-unquote, the rest. (laughs) Sure. Fair enough. (laughs) But my point was that, like, you know, it seems a little, you know, contradictory to have her be a teenager in the film. Like, you you can't – you can't – the pleasure that you will derive, the visual pleasure, the Mulvian visual pleasure that you'll derive from seeing her is – you're cockblocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because she's a high school student, and there's also two other attractive high school students who aren't actually high school students. They look younger than her. They look a bit younger than her, but Dakota Johnson is supposed to be sort of the the mother, the web mother, protecting these girls from this evil Spider-Man who is hunting them because he's having mystical visions that they're going to kill him in the future because they will become Spider-Women. But and then in the movie, they don't become Spider-Women at all. Right. They're just They're just teenagers who are kind of running around. Not even doing anything. I was definitely amused by at the end um, how all they all have families. Like, <laughs> right? They're not orphans. So there's this it, it, this running theme in just you know the movies in general um, as of the past you know, probably like twenty years, which I think is is quite pernicious to be honest. Which is you know this idea of you know the chosen family. Um, you know, it's to me it's the subversion of the you know the actual real nuclear family, which I, I think is actually really bad. And you know I, I guess I shouldn't get into it because it's very political. But 
and, and this movie, they all have families, you know, they're, they're a little bit absent, I guess, but basically Dakota Johnson like adopts them all. And it's like kidnaps them, kidnaps them. Well, I know, but at the end of the movie, it's like, you know, she goes like, they're all mine, all like, my daughters. And then like, you know, they basically are living with her. Number one, like, I don't know how Madam Webb uh, is getting money right now. I, I would love to have seen like a little aside to how she plays the stock market with her powers or something. That would have been funny. Um, but she can't be a paramedic anymore because she's uh, now paralyzed. Um, and I don't remember if she's blind or not as well. Or she, if she's, she's blind. Been... She's paralyzed and blind. So, yeah, I, I don't know how because all the girls are like from rich families too, uh, except for one of them. And so it's like, okay, I, I don't really understand, um, you know, the dynamic that has been presented here for, you know, the necessity of it, um, the morality of it, or the logistics of it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And let's point out, you mentioned paramedic. For much of the movie, Dakota Johnson is working as a uh, paramedic in New York City alongside um, Adam Scott, who uh, plays, you know, who's in the movie a surprising amount, considering that you didn't actually see him in the trailers. You know, he's a fairly uh, prominent actor, and he plays um, Uncle Ben. He plays uh, Spider-Man's Uncle Ben as a as a young paramedic, and they're, you know, and, and Spider-Man's mom is in this movie, pregnant with Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and we never hear his name spoken. Uh, but Dakota Johnson makes this kind of offensive aside early on in the movie when she and Adam Scott are driving their ambulance through Queens. And they get shot at, and he he mentions that this upsets her, and she's like, "What? You've never been shot at it in Queens before?" And you're like, "Are are you kidding me?" Because you know, obviously, Uncle Ben gets shot and killed in Queens oh. um, in in in, in the Spider Man uh, mythology. So it's it's it, there's a lot uh, there's all this there's all this stuff alluding to Spider Man. Well, you know, I completely missed that actually. Yeah, I, I yeah. thought there was actually no relation at all. But yeah, okay, now you point that out. Yeah, his name is Ben. That must be him. <laughs> yeah, and his sister's name, and his and his sister's name is is part. You know, she's married to Parker. Uh, yeah. You know, or her, or, or you know, sister name. They're, they're, yeah, he, it's Uncle Ben. It's funny you bring that up because I saw a pretty funny meme uh, in a couple places here. I uh, yeah, so I'll just read it all the way down. Yeah, all these events happen in Madam Web, except one. Can you guess which one is the lie? Madam Web is born in a cave in Peru with the help of magic spider people. The three. Spider women never get powers and are seen only in costumes during the dream sequences. Evil Spider-Man is killed by a large Pepsi sign. Madam Web becomes wanted for kidnapping by the NYPD. Madam Web runs down Evil Spider-Man in her car twice. Peter Parker is born but not named. Madam Web inexplicably splits into three ghost-like copies of herself near the end of the movie. And did Peter Parker actually get born? Because I thought that was yes, he was born. He was the baby born. So that's the thing is so the joke all is true. <laughs> that they're all true. They're is all that true. they're all true? So well, I, this is I thought the know. funny part was that was that uh, he because I, I missed that it was him, but yeah, he, that he is born but not named. I thought the funny part was that was the most mundane one. <laughs> the rest of them, yeah, are you know hilarious scenes, right? But then, I mean, to me, my, I mean, I was laughing a lot during this movie. My favorite yeah, was too. when Dakota Johnson is like driving, steals an ambulance um, to fight evil Spider Man, driving it through a tunnel, then out of nowhere bursts the ambulance through a billboard. <laughs> Oh, yeah. In the middle of a busy intersection, I don't know what was how what, what could she have driven through. You know, most billboards usually on the sides of buildings, not at the not at the openings right. of tunnels. Burst the ambulance through a billboard, and it lands on Evil Spider Man. 
there's got to be like way too much concrete for an ambulance to get up speed in order to burst through on you know the burst second through level. a billboard yeah <laughs> um, um, yeah it was that was that was perhaps the greatest moment in, in cinematic history john ford himself could right. not have conceived of such of, of something uh, quite like that. So yeah, he's too boring, too boring, too mundane. My favorite, my my favorite joke is or like you know funny part is definitely Zasha Mamet. I'm a big uh, girls fan. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh huh. And she plays Shoshana, who's this very character who's just like this all the time. It's like talking quickly, uh, like a yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, just like really nervous. And she has a, a, a very distinct personality. And uh, t- to cast her as an utter non-role, she gets a good amount of screen time in this, but she's just... She's sitting in an apartment she's just the, <laughs> at a computer terminal. Yeah, she's the... They gave her... They, they referenced the Edward Snowden scandal, and it's like, the NSA's got this technology. You could spy on everybody. Uh, we need to do this to find these spider women so I can kill them in the future. <laughs> it's like, not only is it hilarious, you know, that, like, you know, Marvel is, you know trying to you know be anti-establishment in some capacity it is just just so just you know on the nose and hilarious at that point but sasha mamet is just his character is like sir i've got something and it's like <laughs> that was killing me just i'm just seeing her face does she even have a name just you know and then she does and then and they don't they don't wrap up her storyline you know spoiler alert evil spider-man dies he's crushed by a pepsi sign the pepsi sign that is sitting atop of a building that is full of explosives that explodes and yet isn't condemned and just they leave it there to explode again mm. later in the movie and she her character just just completely d- dissipates we have never we don't know her name we don't know um what happens to her i guess, and i guess it doesn't doesn't really matter it doesn't the main reason why it's conspicuous is because she's so recognizable an actress they give her a lot of close ups <laughs> um, and it's like, did they, I don't know, did they cut around something? She has literally zero character moments, no character or anything. Her boss is like being mean to her. It's like, I am paying you to do this, do a good job. And it's like, she's like, okay. <laughs> well, let's keep in mind too, and we, we got to cut this short in a second, but the the, the voice of the evil Spider-Man, is, there's something called oh, AD, yeah. ADR, which is some kind of like um, dubbing situation. Like every everything... Um, coming out of his mouth sounds like dubbing from that uh remember Woody Allen made that movie um uh, what's up tiger lily way in the back in the early 70s that was this fake dub of this um you know asian martial arts film and uh, it just sounds like it sounds like fake dialogue coming out of his mouth it's so everything he says is so awkward sounding well ADR is really common it's like you know if you <clears throat> didn't get a good um on set take of something or you know, okay, uh, fine, fine. Just, I guess you know. I understand, yeah, but at the same time, I, I the problem not with every this line, in particular, not every line of every. Well, of I think it is every line for it's very close to every line, yeah. um, and it's just you know you can just tell you know the the spatial acoustics of it are not functional, and the you know the actual you know acting presence of it doesn't work. Uh, I, I feel like I was being a little harsh with regards to this. Now, obviously, it's funny and very noticeable. Uh, but typically, when something like this happens, I like to be like, well, what is the actual, you know, artistic valence of this, intentional or not? Um, and it's like he's somehow, you know, disconnected from the entire world or whatever. Not that that is necessarily actually applicable to his character in any way. He doesn't, his, his character is pretty much like, Gur, I have a, a 
a fortune thanks to spider powers. I, I, I kind of missed how the spider powers allowed him to get the fortune. There's no scene of him robbing a bank or... Right, exactly. Nothing makes sense. Look, it, this whole thing felt like I was watching Mystery Science uh, Theater 3000 in real time. And I feel like uh, Madame Web has potential to go down as a, you know, Midnight Camp classic a la Showgirls. Of course, that's a great movie. Okay, yes, uh, sure. But you don't, you know what I'm saying? It's been reclaimed in recent years. But, you know, you, I think I think you have, Madame Web is, is bad enough to watch ironically is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So uh, thank you for uh, sacrificing yourself. And if I, I think, if, but if you're going to get a Dakota Johnson fix in the future, you should just rewatch uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Oh, I didn't get to say anything about it. Oh, it's Antonionian and it's a uh, deterministic. We'll, we'll do it some other time, London. You and I will talk about Fifty Shades of Grey some other time. But for now, we have discussed Madame Web, which is in theaters. You better you better get to the theater pretty quickly because it's going to be uh, showing on TNT uh, within within weeks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Have you ever killed anyone? <laughs> Not really. I should be dead. He fills my It's always there. What do you think happens if we fail? Our marriage? Our mission. And he'll be there. One of the early hits of the 2024 streaming season is Donald Glover's remake of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was a spy comedy, action comedy starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And it was, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was fun and full of uh, effects and Big set pieces, but it, but it had it had some problems. It had some issues, and uh, Donald Glover, who is always the most clever person in any room that he's in, has has taken upon himself to uh, to fix some of those issues with, with the movie, and he has made a TV version of Mister and Mrs. Smith, which is somewhat similar to, but markedly different from the original. And J.P. Gwynn, John Paul Gwynn, has written about Mister and Mrs. Smith for us, and he's here today to talk with me about it. Hello, hello, hello. So you have seen all of the eight episodes of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I've only watched the first couple thus far. Um, and, you know, I have to say, it's it's got a lot of charm, right? Donald Glover plays Mr. Smith, which is, a, of course, an anonymous spy name. And Maya Erskine plays Mrs. Smith. And she was previously best known for being pretending to be a junior high student in the, uh, the comedy Pen15. But she is not a child in this. She is not a child. No. She she is a woman, um, and is not your sort of stereotypical um, action star uh, looking woman. You know, she looks kind of like an indie indie rock uh, gal, and Donald Glover look, looks like Donald Glover. It's kind of it's kind of like a mum, mumblecore spy comedy. That almost sounds backhanded, but it's also kind of accurate. Yeah, it's a little hip and aloof. It it reminds me of a lot. It remind you know it reminds me in certain ways of Atlanta and other shows like that. Yeah, well, to the to, to the down to the fact that Hiro Murai, who I believe co created Atlanta with right. Donald Glover, or at least had a big hand in it, directed at least the first couple of episodes that I saw, and it has that same sort of like you don't know exactly what's going to happen vibe. I mean, there, there's action, 
And there's spy stuff and there are explosions and there's gunplay and, you know, truth serums and glamorous locations and beautiful clothes and all that. But it's also there. there's a, a lot of irony written into this show. There is. Um, it's weird because it does have a very conventional structure in a lot of ways in the way that the shows are set out. And by conventional, I mean conventional in network TV terms where you have the couple, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that are trying to work through their stuff and they'll have like a mission of the week um, and uh, a guest star or two of the week in most episodes. Um, so you have your little piece of adventure and then you have your relationship drama, but it diverts from that. It's much deeper than that in a lot of ways. And it's about millennials and maybe uh, late Gen Z's fear of intimacy. What is wrong I, with I, these kids? Why won't they get intimate? I don't know if I, I don't know if I really go there with the generational thing. I mean, I think to me, I think, I mean, if, if I were going to do like a generational take on it, I'd say it's more about career anxiety and stability anxiety. Like both of them sign up for this very, very odd thing. Like you see, we meet them at the very beginning of the show and they're going through the final stages, the final interviews to get this espionage job. Um, and the interview is with a computer that they call hi hi. That's just putting words up on a screen and they're answering them right into a camera, which is not much different from how we live a lot of the time now. And at the same time, we already know that they have the job. So they're seeing this very big, very beautiful house that they get to live in, in New York, but they've agreed to leave their entire past behind, change their identity and be married to someone that they're working with sight unseen. And that's how they meet. One gets the sense they're being paid very well. Right. They are being paid very well. And they both say that uh, very early on in the show. It's not a spoiler for them to say, you know, that they got into it for the money. But also they got into it for kind of the action, the adventure. You learn very quickly, like, that Maya Erskine, that Jane Smith, Maya Erskine's character, had tried to join the CIA and and wasn't accepted there. And Donald Glover's character is a uh, is a soldier who was dishonorably discharged for doing something in Afghanistan. Right. And you don't, you don't find out what that is for a very long time. In fact, there's still a lot of stuff, even at the end of season one that you don't know about them, but they start to reveal piece by piece, but their, their reasons for being, for doing what they're doing and being in this spy agency and being assassins are stability, money, careerism and, and a sense of adventure. They're pretty shallow in a way. They don't even know exactly who they're working for or why. And they're ruining people's lives. They don't know if they're the good guys or if they're, they're the bad guys. They don't know. Correct. They have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. They really haven't. And that's the thing. The first couple episodes, you're like, they really have no idea what they're doing. They're just kind of doing it. And they have, they have, they have skills. They are physically fit. They know how to use weapons. They, they you know, they, they know how to fight. They can, assume different identities and do making it sound very serious, but it actually is in some ways kind of a light relationship comedy at the same time. And and also I don't want, I don't want to say I didn't enjoy watching it because I I really have been enjoying it and I plan to keep going because uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's a little bit different than what you see on TV, particularly in this genre where you have um, 
very self-serious shows like uh, Red Notice and and Citadel. Jack Ryan, yeah. And a, a lot of them are very boring. And very boring. And, you know, Donald Glover, like I said, is the smartest person in most rooms that he's in, unless he's in a room with Tina Fey. And, you know, he... He he understands this genre and he kind of uh he kind of inverts it in a way. I found it interesting, JP, that the original co-star was supposed to be Phoebe Waller Bridge, who left the show because of what she called irreconcilable creative differences, meaning probably that, you know, I, I can't imagine she and Donald Glover being able to work together because they both like to be in charge. And so and and he this was his baby. So the result is not a disaster. Maya Erskine um is an able um you know comedian and uh and a good actor and is fun to watch and so she and she plays off of Donald Glover very well I will say they both have that same sort of low key affect right like there's right you know Phoebe Waller Bridge tends to turn it up a notch or 10 um so the the the, the show in general is very low key and I would say that it's the guest stars who do the you know, showing showy acting the episode 2 the main guest star is John Turturro and um, right. in his in his scenes, he really um, he really pl- hams it up. And there's a there's a lot of really there's a lot of really great people in the next episode. After that, you get uh, Parker Posey and Wagner Mora, um, and they're both very funny. And Sharon Horgan is shortly after that, and Sarah Paulson is is very very good in a in a very in an excellent episode. Um, that kind of takes the the um, bookending framework of the therapy session that they have in the movie, and and actually does something with it. Because I, w- I went back and watched the movie right after watching the first eight episodes of this because I remembered not liking the movie very much, having avoiding it for a couple of years until somebody finally convinced me that it was pretty good, and then and then I remember just not liking it, and I went back and I liked it even less. Um, it's very, very bad and, and not very exciting and not very sexy. And the show is, is at times, the show is at times pretty sexy and the, and the action scenes are very exciting, but what they do is they kind of bring you back down to earth every once in a while and remind you that they're just ruining people's lives and they don't really know why. And that that's kind of horrifying, which makes it sound like it's a show that lectures to you, which it kind of is. But it also kind of isn't. It's their way of dealing with who the characters are. It sounds like a, it's a very Donald Glover way of dealing with things. And yeah. uh, on top of that, it's funny and kind of lightly satirical. And you can never exactly tell where your sympathies are supposed to lie and with who. And at the same time, it's it's got all the things that you want in a conventional a spy thriller like the action is very good it's very well shot is there a speedboat chase coming up there's not a speedboat chase but there is a boat getaway that comes after a lot of other chasing but there's a lot of good international scenes um there's you know some ski chasing things like Mm. that uh okay and, and the clothes and the sets and everything like that house is amazing Right. Regina and I keep, my wife Regina and I keep looking behind them and they're like, we're like, is that a coffee machine? Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We, keep, we, have, we have coffee machine envy for Mr. and Mrs. It's Smith. very lifestyle porn. Yeah, there's there's clothes and stereos and stuff where I was like, I want that. I want that. And I'm like, wait a second. They have a TV basement? <laughs> I don't, they have a wall of wine. I don't even like wine and I want that wall of wine because it's so beautiful. 
Yeah, you want to at least be able to say you have a wall of wine. <laughs> right. The thing is, JP, anyone can have a wall of wine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an exceptional wall of wine. Yeah, a really yeah. good wall of wine. Well, okay, so, um, you know, it sounds to me like uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, is a... Uh, is a recommended show from Book and Film Globe. I liked it a lot. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a great deal. I've talked to other people who've been watching it, and they've they've been enjoying it too. Yeah, not bad. You know, it's it's funny. Like you know, we're now we're now approaching March, uh, and everything good I have seen so far this year has been on TV, and nothing good I've seen. Well, I did see a, a couple of good movies uh, in the theater, but they were from last year. That's the traditional way of January and February in the United States movie theaters. <laughs> yes, yes. So so uh, January and February have held up. The best two things I've seen this year, I got to say, are, um, are Griselda, which we talked about last week, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is on Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, now you have to watch it with commercials, whether you pay for Amazon Prime or not. But I found that the commercials are only They're at only the, beginning. the beginning. And two of them are yeah. for, for Amazon Prime, so it's not that annoying yet. While you're finishing drinking your, uh, like pouring your your cold brew, and getting getting drink. something off of the wall of wine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> getting something off right. of the wall of wine. All right, JP, thank you so much for uh, calling Mister and Missus Smith to my attention and for writing about it for us. Uh, and your next assignment, will I'll I'll be sending it to you uh, via a secret encoded message. Oh, okay. I'll read it before it self destructs. Nineties and two thousand kids will remember the Daily Show with John Stewart. It's kind of hard to uh, describe to someone who wasn't experiencing it at the time, but you know the Daily Show with John Stewart was was literally essential viewing for just about everybody uh, during the uh, the Bush years, during the uh, after nine eleven, and during the lead up to the Gulf War. And then I feel like John Stewart kind of um, lost his mojo a little bit after Barack Obama got elected, and then he faded away from the scene to some extent, although he still stuck around in one way or another. But now he's back. Jon Stewart is back. And for our listeners who um, who aren't in the United States, uh, The Daily Show is a very important uh, sketch comedy and uh, satirical news program in the U.S. But he, he has returned for this election season. He's only doing shows on Monday. And as I'm talking, there have been Two episodes, but I want to talk about the first episode where he came back. And Jake Harris, a frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, is here with me today to talk about the return of Jon Stewart. Hello, Jake. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So I chose you, uh, Cho Cho chose you for this uh, assignment <laughs> because I saw you, uh, you know, tweeting out how much you enjoyed uh, the Jon Stewart return. And his return generated a, a sort of a surprising amount of controversy from the kinds of people who didn't used to criticize him, from the kinds of people who sort of used to worship him, sort of mainstream liberals. And, uh, you know, they they were upset and annoyed that Jon Stewart dared criticize the president, <laughs> which is his job. <laughs> yeah, who, who would have thought? Yeah, the the whole thing that he, he got famous for uh, in the 90s and 2000s where he took both parties to task equally, or tried to at least, and then the, the one-two punch from him and uh, Colbert Report, just, you know, it's I, I, I was surprised at the controversy that it brought up. I've seen a crazy amount of tweets where people were uh, sending him death threats, uh, 
wondering how he could dare question Biden when Trump is so much worse. And really, like, I was just surprised that what more did you expect from him? This is what he's been doing for years. Well, and I will say, like, he didn't really criticize. He didn't criticize both sides equally during his heyday because the Republicans were in power for most of it. And I think you would agree that when Obama got elected, a lot of the wind went out of John Stewart's sails because, you know, Obama to some extent represented what John Stewart was striving for, you know, sort of like a urban intellectual elite, you know, generally like uh, liberal social policy. Yes, some drone bombing here and there, but not like excessive lying and warmongering. You know, it wasn't, it was just hard for uh, The Daily Show to maintain its um, its power. And so, you know, the segment, most of the show was like this extended riff on Joe Biden is old. Yeah, and the the TikToks and the 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 chocolate chip cookies and the uh, he had a great point where he was like, well, if you're you know he did the classic Daily Show thing of just showing clip after clip after clip of people making the same talking point, same canned speech, and then saying, well, if you keep saying that he is an intelligent leader and he is aggressive and he you know he's in charge, is, he's in charge behind the scenes, then film that and put that on TikTok instead of him looking like everyone's favorite grandpa. Yeah, 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 show it, show it. And then they can't because that that evidence, you know, clearly doesn't exist. And, you know, and uh, John Stewart was, you know, I, I don't, I think that if you put John Stewart in the voting booth, he's going to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump every time. Yeah, but, yeah. but his point was, you know, and this is the same point that people have been making on the other side of the aisle, which is that Joe Biden is old and doddering and not really qualified to be president. Um, and everyone's just kind of ignoring it. And you can't really ignore it anymore after Jon Stewart comes out and states the plain truth. Uh, you know, and, and to be, you know, he made fun of Donald Trump plenty in that segment as well. You know, he pointed out that Trump is insane and that Trump is under cr several criminal indictments. And, right, you know, right. and he didn't he didn't eat every single controversy. Yeah. yeah I mean, he, it's not like he he he. He danced around that, and if necessary, he will he will hone his um, vision on Trump uh, when, when the time comes. But it, I think, I think, I think it's really important and very uh, that he did what he did because it woke some people up. You know, I, I rem it reminds me. I don't know if you remember this or not. I believe it was in twenty twenty one after uh, Stephen Colbert started airing live episodes again. Uh, John Stewart went on as one of his early guests and espoused the Wuhan lab leak uh, mm -hmm. COVID virus theory, which uh, you know people were at the time were like, he's crazy. <laughs> and now it's like, well, this is probably true. Yeah. I also thought that it was interesting this episode, too, where they they almost got ahead of all of the controversy where Jordan Klepper was like, oh, John Stewart's back. Are you going to do your whole the both sides are equally bad shtick? And making fun of him for that. And then the end of the monologue that everyone shared for John Stewart ended with him actually, you know, he did his whole self-effacing, you know, turn to the camera, look how old I am thing. Uh, but then he also started mentioning, you know, like, eh, maybe I was a little bit glib in the past when I did this show. Maybe I was a little bit too cavalier about some stuff. But if there's one thing I've learned in doing this show, it's that, you know, no matter who wins, you know, you can't complain if your side loses or if your side wins, because what really matters is people going out and doing civic action every single day to make the world a better place. And it starts locally and everything. And so I think that was a big, it, it was a different tone from what he kind of had taken in the past really yeah sure but at the end of the day it is a comedy show and uh the the whole point of uh, the uh, good political comedy is to speak truth to power and you know at the moment the democrats are in power 
<laughs> you know? And if you're going to sit around and just, you know, blindly Trump bash, um, here's the thing. Before John Stewart came back, I saw some thread on my Facebook, which I realize is not necessarily a good gauge of anything, except that I feel like my my Facebook feed is is a pretty good gauge of, of liberal panic um, <laughs> most of the time. And people were like, well, maybe John Stewart coming back, maybe if, if it even turns one person, if it even wakes up one person, yeah, then it'll yeah. be worth it. And I'm thinking like John Stewart's audience is not people who need to be turned away from Donald Trump. Anyone who's into Donald Trump is going to stay into Donald Trump and John Stewart isn't going to wake them up. Right, the people yeah. who need to be woken up are the liberals who are, are sort of in denial that their standard bearer is uh, a senile, senile old man. And so I thought that the sh- I thought it was just very effective. And yeah. beyond all of that, it was just freaking funny. I yeah. sat there and I, I laughed I laughed and I was like and I, and I, and I said oh shit a couple of times like I used to back in back in the day. That's the thing, right? It was a nice throwback. Yes, as he pointed out uh, in the close up, he's still old. He, he's older. He's older. He looks he's not still old. He looks old. Um, but he still got it. You know, kind of reminded me of the kids in the hall reboot, right? You know, where they came out and yeah, they they look like shit, but they still ha- but but they still do what they once did extremely well and very effectively. And so I don't know. I'm I'm happy to happy to have this back. I'm happy to see that these clips are going viral. And I think that we don't know exactly what the contribution will be come November, but it, it's going to be significant. And I, I also find it telling that the Daily Show airs episodes every night. But John Stewart's only on Monday. I haven't seen a single clip uh, from the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know who's hosting it, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. All right. Well, John Stewart is back. Jake Harris is is here as always. Um, I would I would check it out. And if you find yourself offend, offended by something that a comedian is saying, maybe take a look at yourself. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jake. All right. Thank you so much, Jake Harris. Jon Stewart on The Daily Show is now watchable on Comedy Central, but also uh, on Infinite Clips Online. You'll be able to find it on YouTube and on Twitter and or X, whatever they're calling it, and uh, any other social media platform. There's lots of Jon Stewart content, and it will be instantly memeable throughout the year. Also, thanks to J.P. Gwynn for talking to me about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and thanks to London Faust for enduring the evils of Madame Webb. Her web connects us all, and this podcast connects us all. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. I will talk to you very soon. Original Production.